Great. Sensational. Terrific. What is it? I told you. Cyberology. Are you with me? Not exactly with you, but somewhere nearby. Oh. This is Cybercrimeology, a podcast about cybercrime, its research, and its researchers. My name is Michael, and congratulations, it's a new year. The start of a new year is an opportunity to sort of think about what you're going to get doing and maybe make some plans. So if you excuse me, we'll uh, do something a little different this episode and that we're not going to have a guest so that we can take a few moments to talk about conferences. Scott Wright will still be joining us again a bit later in the episode, so uh, if you want to hear him answer a silly question and you get tired of listening to me, just hang in there. So let's talk about conferences and academic conferences in particular because they may not be that well understood by those who haven't taken the opportunity to go to many of them. If you think about what makes an accomplished scientist, then perhaps you have an image in your head of hours spent in the laboratory, in a library, at a typewriter, because for some reason your mental image was formed in the 1960s. Perhaps you're thinking of hours at a laptop instead, and and you aren't wrong. This is what scientists do do a lot of the time. People research quite unique things, and they do spend a lot of time by themselves working through their own unique set of problems. There is, however, also a lot of time spent talking, discussing ideas and trends, comparing notes about research approaches, discussing the results of studies, attempting to put ideas into context. This is not an easy thing to do. This sort of sharing involves a lot of uncertainty, and consequently, it requires a lot of trust. So meeting people that will work with you to help raise ideas into published research is a pretty scary prospect. So meeting people that you can have these discussions with is is where events like conferences, seminars, symposiums, workshops, and whatever else they get called these days come into play. Events where people can present the work they've done, share ideas in a fairly controlled setting so that interested observers can come and ask them questions and maybe end up having a great conversation. The other important aspect of conferences is that they're the place where you can get a sense of where the edge of the research is right now. Journal articles and papers, they don't don't tell you this. The process of paper acceptance, peer review and revisions means that the research that is published now was probably being conducted a year or two ago. This means that if you're reading journals and looking for new research ideas, well, then you're limited to what kind of side of edge and, and not the bleeding edge. My point is, it's a good idea to get out and go to a conference every now and then so that you have not only an opportunity to see what people have to present, but also talk to them and share ideas and insights and find opportunities that can help you take your research forward. Getting out to conference doesn't happen by accident, though. It requires planning. Academic conferences can be a real ordeal to organize, and there's a process of review that has to take place before the event so that organizers can make sure that the items that are being presented fit in with the aims of the event itself. And that process takes time, which means if you're going to present an event, which is a good way of having people come to you because you have interesting ideas and not you having to find them, you will need to be prepared well in advance of the event so that you can submit an application to present. So, to illustrate, let's look at some of the conferences for this year so that you can get an idea of the planning that you might need to do. I haven't been to all of these conferences. In fact, I haven't been to most of them. But I've heard good things about these conferences and their organizers. So, while this isn't a recommendation, it's at least a list of conferences that aren't predatory. If you don't know what that is, predatory conferences are events that are organized for the purposes of taking your money and not helping you further your research or share your ideas. If they're held at all, they're just a total waste of time. So. Let's get into some conferences that will be on this year so you can start thinking yourself about what planning you might be doing. So at the start of each year, right in the middle of winter for the Northern Hemisphere, is the Hawaii International Conference on System Sciences, which is held in Hawaii. This year it'll be on the 5th of January and it'll be held in Maui. And let's be honest, it's too late if you aren't already going. But it could be something to remember for next year. 
This is more of an information systems or a computer science conference, but they do have some cybersecurity content. And last year they did a whole track on cybercrime, so there could be some opportunities to meet some people with similar interests. And it's in Hawaii in January. The ACM Kai Conference on Human Factors in Computer Systems is a conference around human-computer interaction, and they can have some really interesting content and people who work on security and privacy. This year it'll be held in Hamburg, Germany, and it'll start on the 23rd of April. It's already too late for you to submit a paper or anything like that, but there might be someone there that you might like to go and meet if you're nearby. The Security, Privacy, Identity and Trust Engagement Network from the United Kingdom will be having their Sprite Plus conference in Belfast on the 28th of June. This should be interesting as there should be some of the work that they've been working over the last four years. You still have a slight window if you're interested in presenting for that one as you have until the end of January. The IEEE European Symposium on Security and Privacy will be held in the city of Delft in the Netherlands from the 3rd of July. And the nice thing about this conference is the workshop groups. Like they have the, the WACOs, which is the Workshop on Attackers and Cybercrime Operations, or the Workshop on Cybersecurity Education and Practice. There are a bunch of sort of more focused workshops that could be interesting. You still have a shot of submitting something for the workshops as they're due by mid-March. The Workshop on the Economics of Information Security, or WISE, is another interesting event. It brings a different angle on cybercrime and cybersecurity, which is always good. The main topic for the conference this year is apparently digital sovereignty, which is always good for a bit of controversy. So I guess that WISE this year will be held in Geneva, Switzerland. And it's on from the 5th of July. So you have about two months left to get something in for that with submissions being due at the end of February. The Symposium on Usable Privacy and Security, or SOUPS, is an event that's attached to a larger computer science conference, but it itself is really focused on users, security, and privacy. This conference has been running for a long time, and it's produced some really interesting papers and presentations. This year, it'll be on in Anaheim on the west coast of the US, starting on the 6th of August. You'll have to hustle, though, if you want to get a submission in for this one, as they're due by the 10th of February. If you're looking for more technical conferences, like large hacker conferences, then the largest of the large would probably be Black Hat and DEF CON, which are held in Las Vegas in the US on the 5th and the 8th of August, and they sort of run for about a week each. If you're thinking of submitting something, then it's probably a good idea to be ready for March, although they don't really sort of have their calls for presentations listed just yet, I don't think. Black Hat is an event in Europe and Asia as well, so there might be one that's a bit closer to you. As an aside to that, though, there are also quite a few B-sides conferences around the world now. So if you're looking for something technical and you're looking for something a little bit more intimate and closer to you, there could be one of them nearby. The European Society of Criminology will be holding their annual conference this year in Florence, Italy, starting from the 6th of September. It's generally a good collection of cybercrime researchers at this event, and I heard a lot of good things about the one last year in 2022. So if you're planning on presenting a presentation for this, you probably need to be ready for mid-April. They don't have the date up yet, but that was about that time last year. And finally, the American Society of Criminology will be held in Philadelphia on the east coast of the US this year from the 15th of November. This is a pretty good event for meeting cybercrime researchers, even ones that aren't from the US. So if you're looking to submit a paper for that one, they're due on the 24th of March. But there is another date a few months later for posters, lightning talks, and roundtables, which the Division of Cybercrime there will probably run a few. 
Now, I apologize if I didn't mention your conference or your favorite conference, but this is just to give you an idea of sort of the timelines that you might have to be thinking of if you're planning on going to a conference this year, and particularly if you are planning on presenting at a conference this year. A few others you might want to keep an eye out for. I'm a bit biased for some of these. The Northset conference that's on in Montreal from the 18th of May is a really fun conference with presentations and training, but it also includes a really large Capture the Flag competition. So if you want to see hackers in their natural environment, that's a great one to go to. And there's also the Cybersecurity Revolution, which is a 24-hour online conference that features content from around the world, which will be on the 10th of May. But I'll leave it at that, lest I stray into self-promotion a little bit too much there. Keep your antennae out for the Human Factors of Cybercrime Conference, as well as the events run by the Cybercrime Research Groups at the Cambridge Cybercrime Center, the NSCR, Michigan State University, and others. I'm going to put some links into the show notes so you can find most of the conferences that I've been talking about. So now you've got your sights set on a conference or two. I hope I've encouraged you that there are some good conferences out there, but how do you make sure that you get the most out of the event that you attend? Now, I'm not the best person to ask on this front, and I'm pretty sure I do conferences in completely the wrong way. So I asked some of the guests that will be featuring over the next few episodes for their ideas. I'm really excited for some of the episodes we've got coming up as I was able to record with people in person. So I'm very excited to share those with you. So besides the interviews, I asked them what their one tip would be for people looking to get the most out of a conference. So when I asked Jordan how... He said this. Yeah, I would say that conferences shouldn't be viewed as an opportunity to present research as much as they should be viewed as an opportunity to connect. Everyone's here to interact with and meet like-minded individuals. So everyone's so nervous that they forget that what you're really there for is to communicate and enjoy each other's company. So rather than being nervous about what you're presenting, um, it's better to use the time and energy to see if you can create new connections and collaborations. And I couldn't agree with that more. And then I asked Marty DeLima what she thought. Before any conference, I go on to the online scheduling meeting planner, use keywords, and I use the scheduling calendars that they have. And I enter all the sessions that I ever want to potentially go to into a calendar. I print it off on a sheet. And that way I'm not scrambling when I'm at the meeting figuring out, okay, what's next? What do I want to do? And that way I can plan my drinks, my coffees, my lunches around the sessions that I do want to attend. So I asked Vulcan Tapali what his one tip would be. So there's people think about conferences in two different ways. They think about conferences as either a networking opportunity or a learning opportunity. And when it comes to a learning opportunity, we have a tendency to sort of replicate the things that we think that we're interested in and ignore the possibilities of what we might not be interested in. And I think that some of the most informative things that I've ever learned at conferences have been when someone said to me, I'm going to the session, do you want to come along? People tend to, and this this happens the more you're there, they tend to kind of look at the symposiums and all that and they think, well, I want to see somebody who I'm familiar with and I want to hear them talk and all that kind of stuff. And I just always encourage people to not do that. Right. Um, because there are, especially if, if, you know, it's somebody that you've seen multiple times before, it's just not worth it to go again. Now, there there are times when I will go to see sessions of friends of mine who are presenting, 
The most interesting thing about that is I usually find that the people who are presenting with them are saying something that I'd never considered before. So that part of it is sort of like, I would be open to the serendipity of opportunities that are available at conferences. You know, pop into a symposium that you would never have popped into before. The other, the other thing is to say that the networking piece is kind of important in the sense that, you know, it is an opportunity to actually meet people. So I don't go to conferences and then pack my day full of nothing but presentations. As a matter of fact, the thing that I learned from my mentor, Richard Wright, was the best place to hang out is at the book exhibit. Because eventually everyone walks through there anyhow. And, you know, you end up striking up these really interesting, cool conversations that happen there. And finally, I would say, I know you only asked me for one, but I would say, don't go to your hotel room at the end of the night and go to sleep. Go to the bar, sit down and and talk to people. You know, it's just really, really it's a great opportunity. Um, some, some folks are shy. They don't want to do that kind of thing. But I think go to the bar and, and talk to people. I've actually ended up making friends with people doing that and writing papers with them later on. So uh, I think serendipity is the, is the key to everything. Which I thought was a pretty good response. So I asked Eden Komar what her one tip would be. I think we should be ourselves when we come to conferences, even though sometimes we tend to shy out. And I know for me, for example, I keep just myself as an example, I'm very introverted individual, although I don't come across sometimes. Uh, because I embrace the phrase, fake it till you make it. Mm-hmm. I just find a, a person that is friendly and I walk around with them to, you know, network. But in terms of presentations, I think the important part is giving the important bits. Because when we go to conferences, we hear about all the theoretical background over the research, which we can all already read it through the paper that was published. The most important part to me is to hear about the methodology, the challenges of doing the research, the potential biases that you think you have in the paper and maybe have a bit of discussion afterwards on like engaging the audience and what can be done in future research or getting ideas, which doesn't necessarily happen in conferences. We only have, we come, we hear a session, we have a few questions and we go away and we go away with a lot of like, unanswered questions because there is lack of discussion. And finally, I asked Thomas Hyslip and Gary what they thought. Planning your day is, I realize, I've been to so many conferences and so many times I don't plan my day and I'm just like working in circles. You know, it's just, uh, I go to DEF CON a lot. Right, it's the Defcon, the hacker convention in Vegas. First couple of times I went there, just kind of jumped in. See, forget it. You can't. It doesn't work. If you want to get something out of a conference, find the ones you want and schedule your day. Also, know the speakers because sometimes conference title might sound great, but if you you know that speaker is not so good, or if it happens to be someone you you know you heard is great, find them. And I think dependent on the conference, pick your conferences based on what you are looking to get out of it. You know, if you're trying to find groundbreaking, you know, real quick research, like DEF CON's a good example, where they come in and they say, okay, we found this new vulnerability and here's the exploit for it and we've notified the company so they can fix it, but here it is. I mean, it's like brand new, zero-day stuff. Or if if you're a, a researcher and you, you want to do more research on, you know, juvenile delinquents, all right, we'll pick ASC and, 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 then, and then plan your day based on those things. But, yeah, you really got to pick and choose where you go and, 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 and then when you're there, manage your day. Because <laughs> there's so much going on. And that all seems to be very good advice. And I'll be following that myself. But I like to pack my bags very early. So I wanted to know what I should take with me when I go to the conference or, or when I go to the event itself. So I asked Thomas Hyslip and Gary what they thought. Well, to DEF CON, um, none of my real equipment. <laughs> <laughs> it's for sure. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah. Lots of business cards. Lots of business cards. Giving everybody you meet. You should never know who's going to be doing similar stuff or, or have data you could use as an example. Or, or find a way to collaborate. Uh, that's the biggest benefit I find at the conferences is the people you meet and the, and the you know future collaborations you might be able to do. I'll go with that. Yeah, I travel light, but I like the idea of uh, ha- having uh, your contact information ready to, just to hand out because yep. that, you're going to meet people quick and fast and just you want to be able to get that out there and uh, move along. So I asked Mighty Delima what she takes with her. I always brig and I never, ever use my bathing suit because I always think I'm going to be so tired at the end of the day. I'm going to want to go up into the hot tub or the spa and just relax that I never, ever get to it. <laughs> and I asked Jordan Howell what he takes with him. Wow, that's a good question. I, I, I don't know if there's one thing other than just the basics, right? Uh, so I'm, I'm going to have to stick with my boring answer of my computer. Because if I take my computer, I can you know, meet an individual at the bar, in the lobby. And at that moment, I'm now in a meeting exploring potential avenues for collaboration. So it really is a tool to you know, advance your own research agenda in, in ways that you may have never considered. Right. And having your computer there really just allows you to just... Um, uh, you'll be in the moment, right? It's uh, you were having a drink, and now you're you know talking about how you're gonna apply for a 1.2 million dollar NSF grant, right? So I asked Vulcan to Polly what he recommends to take. I don't take anything with me. I actually purposely don't take a notebook or anything like that. I find that there is a time to take notes. You know, my phone has probably become the most important thing in the sense that. If I'm at a talk and I see something on the screen that's important, it's, and notes are, you know, and I'm a qualitative researcher, so trust me, I, I love notes. But when I go to the conference, I use my phone to take a picture of a screenshot of what they're talking about at that moment. And I use that to remind myself of what was being said. But I try not to distract myself by having books with me or notepads and, and all that. I think it's an opportunity to just sort of sit there and let the information kind of flow into you. So I asked Eden Kama what she would take. Well, my phone, I guess. <laughs> my phone. Um, yeah, I, I go with with a phone everywhere because, first of all, my emails, <laughs> and also I read a lot, and I read on my phone. I know it's not very good for my eyes, but it's just like the the only item that I can rely on <laughs> at the moment. I mean, it it's crazy because I'm doing research on like criticizing how we give kids cameras. Then at the end of the day, I'm surrounded with a camera all day long. <laughs> then I asked Thomas Dearden what he always takes with him to a conference. Shoes? Yeah, absolutely shoes. And, and I'm, I'm really torn on this because shoes take up a lot of room in my bag. And so how many pairs of shoes do I need? So you'll see me, I've got some nice shirt, slacks, and gym shoes. Nice. So I'm still, t- I'm still torn. So this, this, maybe this is a question for your audiences. How many pairs of shoes do you bring to a conference? I bought one this time, but I bought a pair of slippers as well because I wear them in the hotel room. Oh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So, I mean, really, that we're, we're up to, if we're doing this proper, probably three pairs of shoes. Three pairs of shoes? Yeah, that seems like a lot. Is it is it sneakers, formal slippers, or sneaker, yeah. sneaker, sneaker? What's the... Yeah, no, I mean, I think if we're, we're giving some diversity, right, it's going to be sneakers for things like going to dinner. Yeah. Right, exercising is probably a good idea. Yeah. Uh, and then formal, at least until you're tenured, and then you can maybe not wear that. Uh, and then, yeah, slippers because, you know, hotels. All good advice, and I think I'm probably ready to pack my bags now. At least I'm definitely going to make sure that I take shoes and business cards. 
So let's get to the silly questions. Now, if you're involved in cyber, then you're often expected to answer questions on everything from the difference between the liquids that you can use in a CPU cooling loop to when the next version of the GDPR is going to come into effect. The best way to get ahead of those wild questions is to ask an expert. And we happen to corner an expert on cybersecurity training. Scott Wright has been a security professional for 20 years, specializing in security awareness and compliance, and is the founder of ClickArm. But more importantly, he has a good sense of humor, he's willing to answer my stupid questions, so we'll take advantage of that, and we'll ask him this. What are the things that you hear said about cybersecurity that just just aren't true? <laughs> wow, that's a, that's a big one. There's so many things that I can think of. Uh, I mean, the misuse of statistics sometimes is you know pretty... Uh, alarming. You know, there are cases where we've seen quotes like, you know, uh, 60% of small businesses go out of business within six months after a cybersecurity breach. And we know that um, there are, you know, small business administrations and organizations that are tracking this stuff. And you think we would have heard a little bit more about that kind of a problem if it was that prevalent, because that's a pretty high number. But, you know, those kinds of stats are used to to as fear, uncertainty, and doubt, right? To just get people to say, you know, we need to take this stuff seriously. And to be honest, you know, I, I don't mind using statistics or stories that, you know, strike fear in people's minds because I, it would be a bad thing. It would be, I would say it was fear, uncertainty, and doubt if we were already spending enough on security, but we're by far not. So I don't think that there's too much problem in using data, but it should be real data. <laughs> That's the first thing, right? Um, we, we should have some confidence or at least some transparency into where the data came from and how it was how it was uh, collected and analyzed. But there are a lot of other things. You know, I, I hear people say that security is a lot like health and safety. There's actually, you know, uh, people that go out and, and do talks on uh, cybersecurity awareness, and, and they use the analogy of health and safety to help people understand. But I don't think that's actually a good analogy because there is such a huge difference in the time dynamic. You know, health and safety, we understand pretty well. You know, it doesn't change that often, right? So the, the methods and controls or, or safeguards that you put in place for safety are going to stay the same most of the time. Maybe we'll have new advancements every year or two. But in cybersecurity, like literally things change on a daily or weekly basis. And so... Telling somebody that, you know, we can learn, uh, in, in one case, I, I remember someone saying, uh, you can learn not to touch a hot stove by touching it once and then you, you'll never do it again. <laughs> so, you know, that's kind of the rationale for doing live fishing simulations to say, you know, you, you want to shock people to see what it's like or, or actually feel some emotion when they click on something and realize that, you know, they just got caught. It is kind of a teachable moment. It is memorable. but there are a lot of other things that happen in that moment when people are processing <laughs> that kind of trick or test. So I think just the analogies that are used, uh, another one that I think is a little bit fallible is uh, security is like insurance, right? We think of it that way because a lot of times security can't prevent every thing, every incident or every threat from being successful. And so insurance kind of compensates you for that. So you can model it that way. But I think the real problem with that model is that even though insurance may pay you back for some loss you've had, it won't cover a lot of the losses that are intangible, like loss of reputation, you know? And so 
I, I actually like the analogy of uh, security is a lot like the brakes on your car, right? How, how fast would you go in a Lamborghini that had no brakes? The first corner, you'd, you'd kind of run off the end of the road and if you went too fast. So I, I like to think of it as, yes, we need something that can help us slow down and make sure that we're on track before we go further. And I think that's a better way to look at uh, security. I think I may have touched on the idea of the human firewall in a previous uh, episode, but that's another one that I don't care for. I think the, the fact that you can set the rules on a firewall and it will always obey them doesn't mean you can't break the firewall, but it just means that you can kind of count on it to apply the same rules all the time when people actually can't. Uh, so whether it's, you know, they're, how they're feeling on a given day or the time pressures that they have or any other things that could be going on in, in their world that just cause them to miss something that we've taught them how to do. And even they think they know how to do it and they miss it. So the human firewall is, is another one that I'm not crazy about. There's also this concept, you know, that if we tell somebody something enough times, they'll know how to do it. And this actually takes me back to, if you're, uh, know of Bloom's taxonomy in the training world, you have levels of um, outcomes that you want people to achieve from a training course. And do you want them to just understand something or do you want them to have knowledge that they can recall and, and retransmit or, or recite? Or do you want them to actually be able to analyze something and come out with some new information as a result of what you've put in? Or do you want them to actually be able to take some different behavior as a result of an environment that they're in, like some a risk scenario? And so when we tell people over and over again to be careful of suspicious messages or links, what does that mean to people? I mean, we can tell them over and over and, and they can remember, yeah, I got to be careful of those suspicious links, but they really don't know what a suspicious link looks like. Then you're not actually going to get a good behavior from them. So that's why I think it's, it's much more important to aim a little higher and try and get the objective being to change behavior and to be able to present people with situations they can react to and then measure their response to that particular uh, behavior or the decisions that they're making. Thank you, Scott. That was super interesting. And thanks to all of our guests who popped in for just a moment on this episode. So thanks to Thomas Heislip and Gary, Marty DeLima, Jordan Howell, Vulcan Tapali, Eden Komar, and Thomas Dearden all of whom will be featured in their own episodes very, very shortly in the new year. So that's something to look forward to for all of us. If you are interested in some of the conferences I mentioned, I'll put the links into the show notes. I'm not affiliated with any of the organizers, so I can't help you if you want any further information on those events. So with that, I'll wish you a happy and prosperous new year. And this has been Cybercrimeology, a podcast about cybercrime, its research and its researchers. It was produced by me, but it's only really made possible by the kind guests who shared their time and their research. You can find out more about the show at cybercrimeology.com, and you can talk to me at cybercrimeology on Twitter or at cybercrimeology at gmail.com.